This episode is brought to you by C Rose Go. A quick word from C Rose Go. Dear women wearing a plus size, meet C Rose Go. Finally, a plus size fashion brand bringing you modern, chic, and quality favorites. Find out why women are loving C Rose Go and giving five star reviews at crosego.com, exclusively sizes 14 to 28. Visit crosego.com and enjoy $20 off your first purchase. That's C S E E Rose R O S E Go G O.com. This is Fearless Rebel Radio, a podcast about body positivity, self-worth, anti-dieting, and feminism. I am your host, Summer Inanin, a professionally trained coach specializing in body image, self-worth, and confidence, and the best-selling author of Body Image Remix. If you're ready to break free of societal standards and stop living behind the number on your scale, then you have come to the right place. Welcome to the show. This is episode 170, and I am interviewing Christy Harrison, anti-diet dietitian and author of the book, Anti-Diet. We talk about the history of diet culture and beauty standards, the truth about long-term weight loss and health, and how to get started with intuitive eating and more. You can find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode at summerinandin.com forward slash 170. I want to give a shout out to Candice who left this awesome review. I've been wanting to write a review for a while now, but struggled to put into words how much I appreciate Summer's podcast. She perfectly phrases every idea in a way that's not only understandable, but so very relatable. I feel like she's speaking directly to me. I can't quite put into words how much her podcast means to me and how often I seek refuge in her words. I can't recommend this podcast enough. It's life-changing when you not only no longer feel alone, in the struggle, but also get access to the strategies that make life happiness seem closer than you ever imagined. Thank you, Summer. You are incredible. No, thank you, Candice. You are incredible. That was so amazing to read and yeah, just brings up a lot of feelings. So thank you. Thank you. I put a lot of work into this podcast and it's just so nice to be appreciated for it. So thank you. Thank you so much. That was so kind. You can leave a review too. You can make me cry too. You can go and to iTunes, select rating and reviews and click to leave a review. I would so appreciate it. I really do read them. Uh, It helps others to find the show, keeps it on the air, keeps me doing this work and helps to contribute to the revolution to end diet culture. right? We want to bump those other keto podcasts off the charts. And you can also do help with that by subscribing to the show. Subscribe, just hit the little button on your Apple podcast or Stitcher or uh, Spotify, whatever you use to listen to this show. And if you haven't already done so, definitely get the free 10 day body confidence makeover at summerinandin.com forward slash freebies with 10 steps to take right now to feel better in your body. Today's show is with Christy Harrison. Christy is returning to the podcast. Christy was on the show a few years ago, episode 71. I'll link to that in the show notes. And uh, since then, she's written the amazing book, Anti-Diet. And I'm super excited to catch up with her here and share that with you. I highly recommend this book. It's definitely going to be one of the top books that I recommend to people who are, I want to say newer to this work, but really it's for anyone. But I think, you know, if you're 
you're starting this journey and you're like, oh my gosh, there's so many books, which one do I read? This one does such a great job of summarizing everything in a way that's so well researched and so digestible. And and it also hits on all the questions that we sort of have, like, well, you know, what about health? Or like, what if I'm focusing on weight and like what's going to happen to my body and and all those other things that sort of come up she addresses in here. And we're going to talk about many of those things in this episode. I really wanted Christy on the show again, because we don't talk about food too, too much on this, on the show. It pops up definitely um, every few episodes, but um, I haven't done kind of like um, an anti-diet intuitive eating 101 ever really. And I, I thought this would be a really good one to do so that we could hit a lot of the stuff that Christy talks about in her book and also create this resource for uh, you to share with family and friends. So perhaps you've kind of talked about your journey or what you're doing and maybe they don't fully understand or you're not really sure how to articulate it or why it's so important. This is going to be one of those episodes that you'll want to to share with them or if they have questions like what about weight and um, like what about health? You know, all those questions come up all the time and you're not quite sure how to answer or you're not quite sure how to reference the proper source is this is the podcast that's going to have those answers that you can share with them. And also just to help you become more equipped in answering those questions for people too. So super excited to get into that and uh, let's get started. So Christy Harrison is an anti-diet registered dietitian nutritionist, certified intuitive eating counselor and author of the book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Wellbeing and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating. She offers online courses and private intuitive eating coaching to help people all over the world make peace with food in their bodies. Since 2013, Christy has hosted Food Psych, a weekly podcast exploring people's relationships with food and past to body liberation. It is now one of iTunes top 100 health podcasts, reaching tens of thousands of listeners worldwide each week. You can find more about Christy and her work at christyharrison.com. Let's dive into this interview. Welcome to the show, Christy. I'm so excited to have you back. Thank you so much, Summer. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, a lot's changed since the last time you were on the show, which we were just kind of looking back on. I think it was like probably around three years ago or something. You were on episode 71 here. And I'm excited to have you back because you've got your new-ish, I guess it's been out for a few months now, book, Anti-Diet. And I'm excited for you to talk about it. Yeah, me too. It's so wild to think that that was not even like a glimmer. Well, it was a glimmer in my mind for a long time before I wrote it, but it wasn't even, you know, in the works last time I talked to you. So I've birthed a whole book since then. I know. And it's amazing. It's so well written, well researched. And I feel like it's, uh, you know, it just encompasses so much into one book. And like, it's going to be at the top of my recommendation list now, because it's just it's got kind of everything in it that you want people to understand when they enter into this world. Thank you. That really means a lot. That's kind of what I was going for with the book was like a whole, you know, sort of a all in one resource that I could give people to say, if you want to know more about this movement here, read this. And then we'll, then I'll answer your questions afterwards, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so let's, let's dive into like some of the stuff you cover in the book. And as we talked about up front, I would, um, you know, I really want to spend a lot of this time kind of, you know, talking about like anti-diet intuitive eating 101 to help people 
people like it's always good to be refreshed with this stuff because I think it's really easy to kind of get pulled, you know, pulled back to the pursuit of weight loss. And so it's really good to like have a refresher. And then also like just for people who are newer to this work to have like a, an all encompassing resource. So I'm, I'm excited to kind of dive into that with you. Yeah. Same. And, yeah. Great. And first, so when you talk about this in the book uh, from the start is just the history of diet culture. Why was that so important for you to include? Like, why did you want to include that in there? Because I would say that that's kind of different than some of the other books that are out there. Yeah, I think it is. I think, you know, I've always been so interested in like cultural history of everything, you know, and I think having a cultural history of this phenomenon that is diet culture is really important for understanding like how it came to be and the fact that we're not that it's not just the universal truth. It's not something that's existed since the dawn of time, you know, even though it feels like that, even though we all have grown up in it and pretty much everyone alive on this planet right now, every human being anyway, has, you know, had diet culture be sort of a fixture in their life the entire time they've been alive. It's only like 150 years old, you know, it's not really something that has existed for that long. And I think situating it within this historical context really helps people to see that there is another way and that we're not actually that far removed from a time when people did, you know, were more accepting of bodies, even though there was certainly problems with the beauty ideal in the Victorian era. But that was sort of the last time when like a larger bodied, fuller figure was really considered the the, the ideal type of body. And, you know, it's interesting how far we've gotten away from that. And there's so many cultural forces that have led us there. And I think it's easy for people these days, especially in diet culture, which frames itself as, you know, a health solution, right? It's a solution to this supposed problem of larger body size, aka the quote unquote obesity epidemic. And I use quotes around that because it is problematic and harmful. And even the word obesity is really harmful. But you know, the the way that diet culture frames itself now is that it's a solution to this supposed epidemic. It's, you know, eating a certain way and shrinking your body for your health, for your well-being. It's it's not about, you know, it's not about vanity. It's about wellness, right? It's not about, you know, this is not the Jenny Craig and Weight Watchers that your mom and grandma used to do. This is like wellness because we want to live a long, healthy life and, you know, avoid chronic disease and all of this stuff. So, you know, it's framed in that way as like this matter of life and death and this matter of health and well-being. And actually that sort of rhetoric, that idea that larger body size equaled poor health actually came after the fat phobic ideals and beliefs were already installed in American culture and to a large extent Western culture and our way of thinking about food and bodies. So the, the fat phobia and the food phobia actually predated any health arguments about larger body size being a disease or a problem. And I think that's really important for people living in this cultural moment where, you know, diet culture is constantly telling us six ways to Sunday that like, we have to lose weight to be healthy, we have to stop eating certain foods to be healthy. And that, you know, the the health is really what's driving this rhetoric. And in fact, it's actually the the opposite that the fat phobic thinking, the weight stigmatizing beliefs really were present first. And then the sort of health rationales were confabulated, like to, to, you know, justify the pre-existing fat phobic beliefs. Yeah. And that's, and that's one of the things I want to talk to you about as well is just about like, you know, the obesity epidemic and how that came into fruition. Cause you really talk about that and, and, and 
debunk that for lack of a better word. But before we do that, I, w- I would just I would love your perspective on why divorcing from diet culture is so political. Mm, such a good question. I think it's so political because diet culture robs us of so much time, of so much energy, of so much mental space that we could be using to turn towards social justice, that we could be using to make the world a better place. And, you know, diet culture keeps us spinning our wheels on these things like what we're allowed to eat and not eat and, you know, the size and shape of our bodies and how much food we've consumed or what types of food we can consume and planning and meal prepping and all of these things that just take us away from what truly matters in life. And that means, you know, being able to change the world. That means having agency and political power. And that also means, you know, showing Showing up in our relationships and our creative pursuits and, you know, starting businesses or having, you know, pursuing dreams that we that we have and diet culture robs us of all of those things. And, you know, this is not anything new, right? The fact that it's doing this now is just the same as, you know, diet culture has really always done since it first took root and became a powerful force in Western culture. And Naomi Wolf, a sociologist who's written about this stuff, traces it back to like the 1920s and again in the 1960s when, you know, women and people assigned female at birth were really getting more emerging political power. There was, you know, in the 1920s, uh, women got the vote, you know, nominally speaking, because, of course, voting rights are another story. But in the U.S., women got the vote. And concurrently, the the thin ideal became markedly thinner than it had ever, ever been before. And so suddenly at a time when women had this, you know, more political power than ever before and the right to vote and, you know, really were on the cusp of maybe being able to change things in a way that was more socially just for all, suddenly the thin ideal ratcheted up and became more elusive and more hard, more difficult to attain. And people then were distracted and, you know, taken away from sort of engaging with this uh, new political power that they had been given. Same in the 1960s, you know, in the 1960s, there was the women's movement and all kinds of other, you know, liberation movements with various different um, identity groups. And, you know, people really Uh, working towards civil rights and social justice for people of all backgrounds, including women and femmes. And again, you know, the, the, when second wave feminism came on the scene with Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, it was like a year later that Twiggy became an international supermodel and fashion icon. And, you know, Twiggy was the thinnest supermodel we had ever seen to date at that point. She was 16 years old. She was in like a prepubescent body and, you know, a body that most grown women or people assigned female at birth could never attain. That it's just not accessible to the vast, vast majority of people. And so again, you know, when there was women's liberation happening and the pill and sort of freeing women up to work outside the home and control their own destiny in a lot of ways, this thin ideal again came into play to take away that growing political power and fixate people on the size and shape of their bodies. Yeah. And what's so interesting is that, you know, especially now it's under the guise of empowerment. It's like, you know, you see, you know, like Gwyneth Paltrow, for example, and Goop. And it's like, you know, she's like, all of her stuff is really about empowerment. But, you know, like, it's not. <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, empowerment isn't real power, right? It's, you know, I forget who said that first. I think Kelly Deals had a great piece about that at one point about like the difference between empowerment versus real power. But 
you know, it's, it's the sort of selling an idea of empowerment to women in order to, you know, sort of make up for the fact that our actual power is being taken away. But, you know, the forces that be diet culture and wellness culture, which really is the new guise of diet culture and, you know, takes the form of goop and, you know, things like that, but also diets that say they're not diets, you know, they say that they're resets and lifestyle changes and reboots and plans and programs and protocols and templates and all of these different things. You know, those things are actually taking away our mental space, our capacity, capacity for change, our time, our money, God knows our money, right? Our well-being, our happiness, you know, all of these things I, I sort of trace in the book how diet culture steals each of those things from us. But, you know, it's really true that it, it is distracting us from the things that, you know, the true power, the true political power that we could be amassing and creating for ourselves and, you know, distracting us by saying, oh, look, now you're empowered by this, you know, juice cleanse or you're empowered, you know, everything under the, under the sun is trying to sell itself as the key to women's empowerment. Meanwhile, you know, robbing us of our money. Yeah. And it's, um, you call it the life, life thief, like accurately, because in, in that regard, like it is just taking away our time, our energy, our money, and, it, you know, that's just so true. Like, I just remember sitting at my computer, like logging how many cherry tomatoes I was going to eat in a spreadsheet, you know, and like spending all this money on supplements. And it's just it's yeah. And, and it's so funny, though, because you really start to convince yourself that you're like, no, but I'm doing it because it's healthy. But if you actually ask someone, OK, well, if it's going to make you weight, gain weight, then are, would you still do it, even though it's going to make you healthy? Like, odds are they'd say no. Like it's always about thinness. It's always about thinness. Right. I know. Thinness is like the the driving force and sort of the underlying thing, even though it's being portrayed as being about health. It's really not about health at all. And it's really about such a narrow conception of health too, because, you know, it doesn't take into account mental health. It doesn't take into account social well-being and connectedness. Like diet culture robs us of those things too. It, it you know, takes away our ability to feel competent and to feel like we have agency and to feel in charge of our eating and our bodies and our lives. You know, it makes us give up our autonomy to some outside guru who's telling us what to eat and how much and when and, you know, whether we deserve to have a dessert because we've had too many cherry tomatoes or whatever it might be, you know, like it's just ridiculous. And, you know, it's not, and, and that's not true power. That's not true health. That's not mental health. And we know that mental health has a huge bearing on our overall well-being and our physical health as well. The mind and body are so intimately connected. And so if we're really looking at holistic health, if we're really trying to do something to promote people's health, we have to look at it in this broader sense of not just, you know, physical well, you know, supposed physical well-being that, you know, these interventions don't actually lead to most of the time, but also looking at the effects that interventions might have on people's lives, on the other aspects of their lives that are so important and meaningful for well-being. Mm -hmm. Yes, so true. hundred percent. And I want to, I want to circle back to the obesity epidemic because, um, you, you talk about that and I'd love for you to share with everyone why, we don't have an obesity epidemic. 
Yeah, it's so interesting because that term was really invented around the mid to late 1990s. Before that, there was no discussion of body size as an epidemic. The word quote unquote obesity wasn't really used in the same way to kind of denigrate people's bodies as a disease or to pathologize bodies in the same way. Um, You know, it just wasn't it was much more about aesthetics, right? Dieting, diet culture up until the 1990s was pretty above board in terms of being about weight loss to quote unquote look better. And there was some emerging rhetoric around health that kind of was always there and, you know, I think started to creep in in the 80s and 90s with the low fat craze and stuff like that. Um, The 70s too, was, you know, that's when low fat really started to emerge. But It wasn't this sort of public health emergency that it's made out to be these days. And really that changed in the late 1990s with some researchers at the CDC, specifically this one guy named William Dietz, who is, uh, I've seen his name recently in the the COVID-19 pandemic, writing editorials to medical journals about how, quote unquote, obesity is such a risk factor, which is like a whole other story that is not true or borne out by the science we have to date. But this guy, William Dietz, is like a big diet industry, pharmaceutical industry, you know, connected it with that world and, and a big um, anti quote unquote obesity crusader and, you know, started to be a crusader for this in the mid to late 1990s when he started believing that, you know, body size was a disease and that the sort of incremental shifts that we had seen in people's body size over the 20 years from the 70s to the 90s was somehow more problematic or, you know, was worthy of public health attention, never mind the fact that people's heights had also gone up incrementally in that same period and that people just seemed to be getting taller and bigger overall over that same period. And that, you know, most scientists at the time didn't think anything of it. They didn't think of that as worthy of public health attention. But he did. And so he partnered with this other scientist at the CDC, Ali Mokdad, who I've also seen recently in the news talking about COVID-19. You know, they they partnered and created this series of maps. They decided to present the data in a series of maps to really capture people's attention. And so what happened was that these maps started to be circulated within the CDC and then to, you know, scientists and, and researchers who were doing research on this topic and then to journalists. They they posted the maps on the CDC website for public download, for public consumption. And so the public, you know, started to consume them and the media started to consume them. And what happened was suddenly this this idea of a so-called obesity epidemic went from never really appearing in the press at all. Some scholars have done analyses of this looking at, you know, the, sci- the um, popular literature and the scientific literature too, actually, as to whether, you know, quote unquote, obesity epidemic was ever used together or whether epidemic was ever used to describe body size at all. And it really didn't happen before these CDC maps were released. And then suddenly people were seeing the maps and seeing this, you know, supposed progression of this disease, or that's how it was framed anyway within the maps, because it was, you know, the, the states were turning darker, darker blue, and then some were turning red. And then it looked really scary because it looked like this disease was spreading across the country. When in reality, the maps were actually just showing like the percentage of people in each state with a BMI over the cutoff for quote unquote obesity. And 
you know, that's really, that's problematic to present that in a map form with the colors changing because large rural states that don't have that many people in them, even if they have, you know, maybe a somewhat higher percentage of larger bodied people than say people in more populous states, you know, so it's, it would be like the sort of southern rural states that tended to have higher rates of larger body sizes made it look like huge swaths of the country were being you know, we're getting bigger. And that really wasn't true. It was just like a, you know, a small shift in the percentage of people in those states. And we're talking about like a different, you know, at the time when they created those maps, the difference was in the single digits. Like it was a single digit number of pounds on average that people had gained over the years to make that difference. But the way it was presented, right, like a single digit number of pounds, which is really, you know, it could be the result of, like uh, my colleague Reagan Chastain is like, I could, you know, just exfoliate and lose, lose that weight. Right? <laughs> I was going like, to say take a bowel movement. Yeah. Take a bowel movement. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah, you don't have to, you know, do much to lose that, that small amount of weight or gain that small amount of weight. And it's not really indicative of what, of reality for most people of like, you know, their body size is not changing dramatically. Of course that's averages. So, you know, for an average uh, body size to change that much in a certain number of years. You know, some people would say that's significant, but, you know, really making it into a public health crisis, making it out to be this national emergency when it was literally just a single digit number of pounds on average that changed is just mind boggling to me. It's just ridiculous. And unfortunately, what happened as a result of that was that now people consider body size to be a disease, you know, in the, in 2013, the American Medical Association labeled quote unquote obesity as a disease. And every time it's made out to be an epidemic or a disease or a health risk factor, we know that that actually increases weight stigma. There's, there's scientific evidence that merely having someone read an article about the so-called obesity epidemic increases their levels of expressed weight stigma. And weight stigma is an independent risk factor for all of the things we tend to blame body size for, like heart disease, diabetes, some forms of cancer, early mortality. All of these things can be explained largely and sometimes entirely by weight stigma alone, not by the, the difference in body size. And so, you know, creating this so-called obesity epidemic really created a weight stigma epidemic. And that, I think, is the real problem. I think that is the real issue that we need to address as a public health community. That is the real issue that we need to be focusing on, not stigmatizing people for their size, but looking at how this, you know, stigmatizing rhetoric, painting body size as a disease has led to higher levels of weight stigma, which not that it's a big deal or means anything, but weight stigma has also been shown to be a risk factor for weight gain. Like it, it tends to lead to weight gain, not weight loss. Stigmatizing people for their weight tends to make them gain more weight over time, likely because people feel so shamed and you know, stigmatized that they might turn to food for comfort more. They also tend to have um, higher levels of cortisol, which is the stress hormone, which, you know, does a lot of good things for our body in times of stress. But um, one side effect that it has is, is that it also tends to increase weight gain. And so, you know, having people who are stigmatized and stressed because of the stigma tends to lead to the opposite 
you know, uh, behaviors that diet culture tells us we need to be doing in order to lose weight. And again, I will say like, there's nothing wrong with being in a larger body. There's nothing wrong with gaining weight. Those things are actually very morally neutral and even neutral from a health perspective. And I think people deserve to know that diet culture is really selling them a pack of lies and that, you know, what it's saying about body size being a risk factor is actually creating the very outcomes that it purports to want to to want to help. You know, it's actually creating these disparate health outcomes for people in larger bodies. And if we stopped stigmatizing body size and stopped shaming people for the size and shape of their bodies and actually help them take care of themselves in terms of making peace with food and, you know, making peace with physical activity and finding forms of movement they enjoy and getting access to health care and getting better sleep and getting, you know, psychological health, mental health uh, resources and changing society so that poverty and food insecurity weren't issues anymore. All of that stuff would would do far better in terms of population health, in terms of helping people achieve health than stigmatizing larger bodies does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so well said. And but people people always come back with the argument that it's a burden on on taxpayers, like the the, the cost of obesity is a burden on taxpayers. And, And you talk about this in the book. So I'd love you to, you know, what's your response to that? Yeah, I I think that's just more weight stigma. You know, I think that's just more of how diet culture sees larger bodies as a problem and blames them for health outcomes. So, you know, it's just an extension of that, right? And the reality is that people in larger bodies get sick just like people in smaller bodies do. And there's lots of health conditions that affect people all across the weight spectrum. But what happens is that people in larger bodies get worse health care. That is a documented reality that people in larger bodies are stigmatized and shamed for their weight at the doctor's office, are seen as less less desirable patients. Doctors actually don't want to spend as much time with them. They, you know, say terrible things about larger body people in research. And And people pick up on that, of course, you know, if you're a higher weight person and you go to the doctor and you're feeling this stigma and shame, it doesn't make you want to go back to the doctor and it doesn't make you want to do what the doctor is telling you. You know, it usually results in people not going to get care as often as they need to and delaying care until their situations are far worse so that by the time they do come to the doctor, their situation, you know, their conditions are more progressed and um, often might need a higher level of care and intervention in order to, to, you know, solve the problem. And so that just gets painted again as like, see larger, higher weight causes these, these poor health outcomes, higher weight, you know, causes people to have, you know, joint problems and causes people to have asthma and chronic breathing problems and, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be, right. It gets blamed on the weight itself, not on the subpar care that people are getting and not on the weight stigma that they're experiencing that creates greater stress in the body and leads to greater levels of chronic inflammation, which we know can be part of the process of many diseases. So, you know, again, it's, it's this idea of blaming the body size for something, you know, for any health outcome that a person might experience and saying that that's due to their body size when in fact, you know, people of all body sizes get the flu, get, you know, joint pain, get muscle aches, get whatever it might be. And 
people in larger bodies are the only ones getting, you know, they're sort of anything that happens to them, anything that happens health wise to them gets chalked up to their weight when in fact it has nothing to do with that. In most cases, there's so many underlying factors that go into why people get sick or get chronic diseases that have nothing to do with their body size, including genetics, including quality of care, including, um, socioeconomic status and other factors that, you know, we know influence people's, uh, health outcomes that have nothing to do with what, you know, how much weight they're carrying. So I think it's really so stigmatizing and problematic to say, you know, quote unquote, obesity is a burden on taxpayers because it has all this underlying blame on body size for any disease that a person might experience in a larger body. And it's just not true. Yeah. I'm so glad that you were able to explain that so well, because I just feel like that that's, you know, it's never talked about. It's never, it's never questioned. It's always just, and it's become a fact, you know, because people, it's just something that's been repeated over and over and over. Yep. And even like in scientific journals and stuff, it's, you know, it's sort of this echo chamber where people will start their article about whatever, you know, whatever scientific finding they found with this long introduction, this preamble about how quote unquote obesity is the scourge of the, of the modern day. And it's a public health menace. And here's all that we know about obesity and, you know, just references back to something that's referencing back to something that's referencing back to something that is, you know, it's built on this whole foundation of just assumptions about body size based on a correlation we might see between higher weight and a certain poor health outcome that, you know, correlation is not causation, right? For anyone who's taken a introductory statistics class, you know, this that correlation does not equal causation. Meaning if we see an association between, you know, two factors, in, in science, we can't say that one caused the other without controlling for every possible variable that could have been the real cause. And so, in you know, the case of body size, it gets blamed for things like diabetes or heart disease, right? It's like, oh, you, you ate yourself to death or you, you, you know, gained so much weight that you gave yourself diabetes or things like that. And that is just bogus weight stigmatizing bullshit, frankly, like it's not okay. And really what, you know, we need to be doing in those situations is controlling for all the confounding variables that could potentially and likely do explain that association, like the fact that larger body people have higher levels of weight stigma that has been documented. And that we know is a risk factor for heart disease. It's a risk factor for diabetes and so many other things that get blamed on higher weight. So is weight cycling, which is another thing that we haven't really spoken about yet, but that's, you know, the chronic, uh, yo-yo dieting, the cycles of weight loss and regain that people go through and really up to 98% of people go through when they try to lose weight because diets just don't work in the vast majority of cases for more than five years. So, you know, some people might be able to lose weight and keep it off for a year or two, maybe three, maybe four. But by the time they get to five years, up to 98% of people have regained all the weight they lost. And up to two thirds of those folks have gained more weight than they lost from, you know, intentional weight loss efforts. And so, so when people are trying to lose weight, it actually is much more likely to result in weight cycling and oftentimes even higher weights than it is to result in permanently lowered weight. And so weight cycling, you know, not, not anything to do with weight gain, but just weight cycling itself, that yo-yo of weight loss and regain is independently associated with, and is a risk factor for all of the things, again, that get blamed on higher weight. So diabetes, heart disease, some forms of cancer, early mortality, et cetera, et cetera. 
And so, you know, who's more likely to weight cycle in our society? It's people who've been told to lose weight. And who's more likely to be told to lose weight? Higher weight people, right? So higher weight people, again, have this other risk factor disproportionately affecting them that is weight cycling. And there's some evidence that weight cycling alone can explain all of the excess risk for heart disease that we see in people in larger bodies. You know, just weight cycling, not to mention the fact that weight stigma is an independent risk factor for heart disease, too. So for anything that gets blamed on higher weight, I think we really need to look at the confounding variables, you know, and and make sure that people know it's not it's not a causal thing. It's not that higher weight causes poor health outcomes. There's always at least several things, if not, you know, a dozen or more things that could be explaining that association. Yeah. So I, I want to talk a, a bit more about the concept of weight cycling because I think, you know, I think a lot of people kind of intellectually know, okay, diets don't work. Yes, they result in weight gain in the long term. And then, and yet people will say, well, but I'm doing keto and it's like, it's a lifestyle change and it's for my health, <laughs> you know? And so like how, you know, how do you tease apart the two? Like, or how can you sort of explain to people that stuff like that still is a diet and it still is going to fall into that same kind of like weight cycling pattern where it disrupts your metabolism and all that other stuff? Yeah. I think this is where history is a really great guide because, you know, when, as I talk about in the book, the first best-selling diet book author was uh, a guy who wrote a diet that was basically a proto Atkins or proto keto diet. It was a low carb diet. It was low carb, high fat, you know, had a lot of alcohol involved as well. Cause they believed that was protective or helpful for honestly reducing constipation caused by the low carb diet. But, um, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Like, all of these diets have been tried before. There's the, the Banting diet is the one I'm talking about that dates back to 1865. And there were various versions of that, you know, low carb and low fat sort of cycled through again and again over history, becoming, you know, the more dominant form of diet with low fat kind of having a real streak in the, you know, 70s to 90s. And then low carb again, kind of upended it in the mid to late 90s. And we're sort of in a low carb moment still, I would argue. So, you know, that there's nothing new about keto. There's nothing different about keto that is not, has not been tried before by, you know, millions of people in the past. And none of it works long term. None of it is actually a quote unquote lifestyle change that sticks. It's your body is designed to fight weight loss. Your body is designed to get back to its set weight range that is genetically determined and when you're, you know, restricting yourself of energy and your body senses a deficit of food coming in, it drives you back to that set weight range by so many different biological mechanisms that are out of your control. You know, things like turning down your body temperature, making you less, making you more tired, you know, more fatigued and less likely to do things and put less effort into physical activity. Even if you're trying to push yourself, you're still unconsciously doing less. You might even be doing less unconscious movements throughout the day, unconscious, like, you know, fidgeting and um, tapping your foot and things like that without even realizing it because your body's trying to conserve energy. It also reduces your uh, hormone levels or, you know, throws your hormone levels off and basically kind of shuts down the reproductive system. So for people assigned female at birth, that might mean you lose your period, which we know is really harmful to the body in a lot of ways because it, you know, can uh, lead to osteoporosis and, and osteopenia, harmful fractures. 
for people assigned male at birth, that tends to result in lowering of testosterone and sort of lower sex drive, lower energy overall. Lower energy in general is, you know, a, a symptom of starvation and not having enough energy coming in. Um, people also experience, you know, things like fatigue uh, or mood swings, um, you know, anxiety, emotional states, heightened emotional states as a result of starvation, as a result of not having enough energy coming in. So it has a lot of negative side effects on your mental health as well. But it's, you know, physically your body has all these ways of uh, accounting for and sort of making up for that energy deficit by any means necessary. And even in people who stick to the diet, even in people who are still, you know, capable of, of sort of willing themselves and forcing themselves into sticking to the diet when they're, you know, like a lot of people, right, end up binging. A lot of, a lot of us are driven to binge because of restrictive diets, because of not having enough energy coming in. And that's one, another of the ways our bodies drive us back to our set weight range is to increase our hunger levels, decrease our fullness levels so that we don't feel full as fast, increase our thinking and perseverating about food so that we'll seek out food so that we'll you know, get the nourishment that we need. And so for the vast majority of people, that's what happens is that the restriction really drives binging. Restriction drives you to feel out of control, eat a lot in one sitting when you do finally have access to food. And that's a protective mechanism that really helps us stay safe and helped our species stay safe in times of famine. It's, you know, I often say it's why we're here. Like if we didn't have that response to restriction driving us to binge or driving us to eat as much as possible in one sitting when we finally do have access to food, our species would have died out long ago. And there is, you know, there is a small percentage of people for whom that binge response doesn't happen. And that's the folks who end up with like anorexia and anorexia nervosa can really happen at any body size. So even much larger bodied people can have anorexia nervosa. It's, you know, right now in the DSM, it's called atypical anorexia, which I don't like because it's actually much more typical to be larger bodied or to be, you know, not to be emaciated when you have anorexia um, than it is to, to have that emaciated state. But for people with that anorexia response where they, you know, where restriction begets more restriction instead of begetting binging, those folks also have biological responses that try to drive them back to their baseline. And so that's why actually most people don't end up in that state of emaciation because again, your body, you know, adjusts to be able to survive on less food. It, it really tries its hardest by, you know, diet culture calls it lowering your metabolism, right? Slowing your metabolism. That's actually a survival response. That's actually a way that your body tries to help you survive and thrive even when you're in a situation of starvation. And of course, you know, our bodies do what they can, they do their best, but they can only do so much. And at a certain point, oftentimes your health really starts to deteriorate if you've not been having enough energy coming in for a long period of time. And especially if you're not binging to make up for it because the binges are actually protective. So in people who have anorexia or people who have bulimia where they're not getting those needs met chronically for a long period of time, and that doesn't even have to mean diagnosed anorexia or bulimia, but just, you know, behavior is consistent with that. They'll tend to also have, 
you know, really terrible things start to happen. Like their, their, um, body starts to catabolize or eat their organs in order to survive. Because when you don't have enough energy coming in, even if you're eating quote unquote enough protein, the protein is getting converted into just glucose so that your body can run and you're not getting enough protein to meet your, your body's needs for that. So it starts to break down the protein in your body, the muscles in your body. And that includes your heart, your lungs, your liver, you know, all of your organs are muscles. It also starts to break down your, your skeletal muscles as well. So you might start to feel weak, you know, your performance and any sort of athletic pursuit that you might have is, is, you know, tends to go down. So, you know, that's really scary, right? Because when your body starts eating your heart, your liver, your brain, your lungs, you're going to have significant and serious health consequences to that. So that's kind of the, the most extreme form of the body's response to starvation to try to keep us alive. Because even that, even, you know, starting to catabolize your heart is preferable to dying of starvation, right? Your body is, you know, sort of doing the best it can to keep you alive, even if it has to start, you know, it's like, it's like taking down the, you know, inside of a house to keep warm, right? I often liken it to like, you're in a wood cabin with a wood burning stove, and you don't have any wood coming in. So what do you do? You have to like, start taking down the support beams and start taking down the walls and the structure of the house just to burn to keep yourself warm. And eventually, that's, you know, you're not going to have any more wood left. So, you know, it's really, it's really dire, this, this situation with dieting. And, and, you know, keto is just one of many that calls itself not a diet, but a lifestyle change, right? But it's all the same. It's all deprivation. It's all starvation. That is how your body perceives it. And that's how your body is going to react. Yeah, that's so well said. And, you know, this, this idea that, you know, your body is really trying to protect you by having the compensatory response of binging and, you know, in the worst case, like you said, like starting to eat your organs, essentially, like your body is really trying to keep you alive and trying to protect you. And and the weight re- regain that you experience from having a diet not work because they don't work is just your body's way of protecting you and healing. And I think that that's a really important reframe for people to understand instead of being resentful at themselves and thinking that they did something wrong or like that there's something broken inside of them because that's what diet culture has them believe that no, they're actually, their body is really trying to protect them and it's healing. And that's like a proper response to the restriction. Yeah. That means your body's looking out for you. Yeah. So I want to shift gears here and talk just, uh, you know, quickly, <laughs> as quick as we can about intuitive eating. Um, you know, so, so like what are, you know, obviously diets don't work, but what do people do? And, you know, intuitive eating is, is what we both are huge advocates for. What are some of the first steps people can take to eat intuitively if they're coming from a place where they're used to seeing things as good or bad or calories in and calories out? Like, what, where would you recommend people start? Yeah, it's so it's so challenging because relearning intuitive eating is definitely a process for people who've been waylaid by diet culture. And I say relearning because we're all we're all born with that skill as intuitive eaters. It's the default mode. It's the way we're all born knowing how to eat. But intuitive eating as a practice and philosophy for reconnecting with those innate skills has 10 principles as developed by dietitians Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch, who are the founders of this model 
you know, not the, not the creators of intuitive eating because basically the human race, our bodies created intuitive eating, but, um, you know, the founders of this model designed to help people get back in touch with those innate cues and their first principle of intuitive eating. The first principle of intuitive eating is reject the diet mentality. And that is so important and essential as a foundation to build the rest of the principles on top of, because only when you've rejected the diet mentality or working towards it, because, you know, it's hard to completely do that in our culture. Only when you're really working on that, can you start to accept and honor your hunger, which is the next principle. And only then can you start to accept and make peace with food, you know, open up to different kinds of foods and not have anything that's off limits or seen as bad. And all the principles kind of build on each other. So not that it's like you have to be perfectly you know, good at one before you can move on to the next one, because they all do sort of intersect as well. But they really all work together and and form this foundation that leads to, you know, reaccessing intuitive eating. So rejecting the diet mentality is is the thing that I focus most on, I think, with my clients and my audience. And when that piece of the pie is in place, or that foundation is laid, I think it becomes so much easier for people to start to trust themselves with food. And so that's what my book is all about is rejecting the diet mentality is learning the ways in which diet culture has a hold on us and why we need to fight back and how to talk back to diet mentality thoughts. And, you know, get underneath all this rhetoric or about so called obesity. And I think when you can start to shift your mindset like that and start to Um, have a mentality not of dieting and restriction and deprivation, but more of self-care, abundance, allowance, permission, self-compassion, you know, that starts to lead towards food choices that can help you feel nourished and satisfied and ultimately so much better than dieting does. Yeah. And one one of the places where I see people trip up, trip up is really kind of focusing on hunger and fullness and, and specifically like, okay, am I really hungry? Okay. Like what level of fullness am I at and trying to get that right. But as you, you kind of mentioned in your book, like really focusing on trusting that you have enough is like, is paramount. Like you have to do that first, like kind of give yourself that permission and let your body get the memo that like, okay, there is food, you know, food is, I can have it anytime it is there. Would you say that that's like something that a lot of people trip up on is really kind of focusing on that hunger and the fullness and and getting wrapped up in that? Totally. Yeah, I think it's really so common and sort of almost like the the most understandable like rookie mistake with intuitive eating that people make because we're coming from diet culture. And so intuitive eating is like this radical paradigm shift that's completely on a different level. And it's hard to wrap your mind around when you're coming from that diet mentality. So kind of people want to make rules about it. You know, they want to turn it into a they want to turn it into a diet. And I think turning into a diet can look a number of ways. But one way is what our colleague Isabel Fox and Duke calls the hunger and fullness diet, where it's like, I can only eat when I'm hungry, and I must stop as soon as I'm full. And I have to hyper focus and obsess about whether I'm hungry or full and how to know about those things so that I can like do it right, quote unquote. And when you get underneath that, what it's really about is like, so that I can lose weight, right? Or so that I won't gain weight. Um, And maybe there's some, you know, health, healthist rhetoric in there too, about like, I'll be a bad person if I eat too much, or I have to like, control my hunger in order to be morally valid, right? Because that comes from this like, long history of, you know, in in the Western world, anyway, of sort of demonizing pleasure and, you know, satisfying hunger as being this sort of carnal thing that's supposedly bad somehow. 
So I think that, you know, it's really important to look out for that and to not turn intuitive eating into the hunger and fullness diet. And yeah, like I talk about in the book, you know, really prioritizing having enough. That's what honoring your hunger really is about is making sure that you have enough so that your body can trust that it's getting its needs met, that it can trust enough food will be coming in consistently again and again. It's not going to be deprived again so that it can relax, so that it can relax around food, so that it can let go of its, you know, effort to survive and keep you safe. Right. And, and so that, you know, because some of those, those efforts that your body engages in, like driving you to binge can feel kind of uncomfortable. And of course that discomfort is compounded by our judgments about binging in diet culture, but you know, physically that can feel uncomfortable and it can lead to sort of fluctuations in energy levels that, that don't feel good where you feel really tired and sort of, you know, not capable of doing much sometimes. And so you know, if you want to heal from that, if you want to get out of that restrict binge cycle, giving yourself enough is really the important, the most important thing. And once you're able to do that, I always say like fullness really tends to fall into place once you're truly honoring your hunger consistently, repeatedly over time and truly having enough, you know, not saying, okay, I'm hungry and I'm going to honor my hunger, but I'm going to like bargain with myself and game the system so that I can eat less and like eat just enough to somehow take the edge off my hunger, but not be truly satisfied. That's not what it's about, right? It's about being truly satisfied. It's about eating enough to truly nourish yourself and satisfy that hunger. And only then does the sort of frenzied quality of your relationship with food and the feeling of eating, eating to a point of uncomfortable fullness when you do have access to food, that all tends to dissipate once your body and your brain truly trust that you have enough. Yeah, that brain part's really important. And that can take a long time. I think, you know, once you've had the the diet mentality and for so long, it, it takes a while for your brain to get the memo that the famine is over. Like it really, really does. And I think that that one is like a can be kind of a sticking point for people that they have to be patient with and really try to reinforce, you know, both mentally, like reinforcing themselves, okay, like this, you know, this food is abundant, I can have this, it's not, you know, I can have this food, I'm allowed to eat this food, and not beating themselves up for eating it and things like that. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's really a form of trauma. You know, that deprivation is trauma that gets stored in your body and your brain. And to undo that trauma and tell yourself that you really are safe and that you have enough takes so much effort and so much consistent practice. And, you know, your body and your brain do sort of work together in that, in that like once you feel like you really do have enough and you're, you're able to trust the physical hunger and the sort of frenzied quality of your eating tends to subside. And also that mental fear and, you know, constant vigilance around, okay, what am I going to eat? Is it, you know, can I have enough? Like will also start to dissipate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So good. We have to wrap it up, but, and I feel like there's so much more we could talk about but you talk about a lot about this on your podcast and so much in your book. So hopefully this just kind of spurs people on to, to take that next move and to pick up your book because it really is great. And it covers this stuff in a lot more detail and gives a lot more specific advice on how to kind of take that next step to eat intuitively and reject the diet mentality as well. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's so great to talk with you about this stuff and hope people will, will check out the book and listen to the podcast and... Yeah. So yeah, tell, just, tell people where they can find the podcast, where they can find the book. 
Yeah. So people can find the podcast wherever you're listening to this podcast. Basically, it's called Food Psych. It's food space P-S-Y-C-H. And uh, you can find it on my website, christyharrison.com, where I also link to the book. And the book is called Anti-Diet. It's available in, well, not in so much as on websites of bookstores everywhere at the moment because nobody wants to be going to bookstores right now as we're recording this. It's COVID-19. But um, it's in bookstores and also online through major books sellers. And you can find out more information about where to get it and order it online at christyharrison.com slash book. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's been it's been amazing having you back and like so cool to talk about a whole bunch of different things than we talked about the first time you were on the show. And yeah, I just really enjoyed hearing you and having this conversation. Thank you so much, Summer. It's such a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, I always learn so much. All right. Thanks, Christy. Rock on. Wasn't that great? Didn't you learn so much or take away a lot? I feel like we covered so much in this episode when I was when I was writing out all the things that we discussed afterwards. I was like, we covered so much in this episode. It's going to be such a great resource. So bookmark it and um, plan to share it with people if they have questions or you want to introduce them to this work. You can find all the links mentioned in this episode at summerinandin.com forward slash 170. And you'll also find a link where you can purchase Christie's book anti-diet there. Uh, definitely do that. It's a wonderful book to add to the list of books that um, you want to read when you're doing this work. There's so many of them now, which is amazing. Because when I started, I think we were like three, but um, it's so good to have so many books now. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I will talk to you soon. Rock on. I'm Summer Inanin, and I want to thank you for listening today. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Summer Inanin. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this show. I would be so grateful. Until next time, rock on. Rock on.